Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. And we are reporters for Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary sector. This week, we'll be examining what good grant-making practice looks like from a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective and where the system has so far been falling short. But first, Russ, you have been writing a long read recently about football. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm a very serious journalist doing a very serious job, but I've persuaded the editors to let me write not just about football, but to write about Derby County, the greatest of all the football teams in the world. Uh-huh, um, is it? Never never heard of that. No, a lot of people aren't aware that that's the case, but I like to try and correct people as I go through my life. So yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I got to spend a bit of time digging deep specifically into the question of, well, when football teams get together with charities, what does that look like? It's happening more and more. That's why we got involved with it. So for example, Derby County, greatest team in the world, have I mentioned. At the moment, their football kit is not sponsored by some big corporation or some uh, well-known firm. It's sponsored by the NSPCC, the Mm. giant children's charity. And so I wanted to use that as a starting point to try and understand, well, what do charities get out of deals like this? This is not the only one in the sector. Lots of voluntary organisations are trying to get in on the game, as it were, and, and get involved with their local football teams. What's it worth to the charities and what's it worth to the football teams? So I got to talk to Derby County, I got to talk to the NSPCC, and I got to talk to a whole bunch of experts who, who wanted to talk about the brand value of that kind of thing. And where you say sponsored by the NSPCC, it's not presumably not the NSPCC propping up <laughs> and furthering financially the interests of Derby Football Club. No, although failing League One teams do need all the help they can get. But no, that is exactly the right question. And I think it's hopefully what I was able to explore in the piece because... Derby County is owned by a multi-millionaire development company. What they essentially did is buy the football club and then immediately say, look, we want to have a national charity who operates in the area, in this case in the East Midlands, to support them to sponsor the shirt. So they lend the space to the charity, essentially. The NSPCC then gets that space for free. And I talked to the charity about all the things that they will do around that. So on a match day, You go to Derby County, you'll see NSPCC absolutely everywhere. More information about their services, what they're doing locally, how they're helping people in Derby in the East Midlands. And they even made sure that the Derby County manager, a bloke called Paul Warren, gets to wear an NSPCC bobble hat. And he goes Mm -hmm. and does press conferences and promotes the brand. And then NSPCC sells more of those hats and that money goes towards helping kids in the UK. So you can see how it all works out. But no, you're absolutely right. NSPCC is not spending the money to help the football club, they are the beneficiaries of a deal with a private company that sits between the football club and the charity. So they can be slightly complicated deals to manage, but the ultimate beneficiary, I think, here is a charity that's getting an awful lot of publicity, taking a bit of risk, and I'm sure we can talk about that as well. But ultimately, they are getting their work and their name out there for free. So what are some of the downsides to that? Well, one of the things that I didn't write about in the piece, but I'd like to have explored a bit more... This isn't the case with Derby and the NSPCC, I think, but other situations with football clubs and charities, there is a danger, I think, around the relationship with gambling companies. So Middlesbrough Football Club, they lent their football shirt in the same way, and instead of having a private sponsor, they put their local charity foundation on there. Their normal sponsor is a gambling firm, a big international gambling firm, and one of the experts I spoke to was saying, look, you've got to be careful about this if you're a charity because are you essentially being asked to improve the reputation of that gambling firm almost to sort of greenwash the image a little bit by taking over that sponsorship? There are other charities as well who've done that. Charlton Athletic for a few seasons 
They're owned by a big global gambling company and they were sponsored for a little while by Children with Cancer UK. Absolutely terrific charity. But they're in when they enter into that deal, they are essentially also entering into a relationship with a gambling firm. And we all know some of the problems that there can be for gambling, especially for young men, especially that target audience mm-hmm. for football teams. So charities are then in a very different relationship and that's much harder to manage. Very interesting. So if anyone would like to find out more, they can read your article on the Third Sector website? They absolutely can. If you go to the long read section of our site, lots of brilliant stuff. A few pieces by you, Lucinda, some by Alina Martin, our colleague. And yes, not the most recent one, but the one before that is all about football clubs and Derby County. Big picture of Paul Warren, the aforementioned Derby County manager. Go and have a look. Now, moving on to our main feature of this week's episode, we will be speaking to two guests about DEI in grant making. Now, why are we talking about this, Russ? Well, the most obvious reason is there is a new report coming out from the consultancy and think tank NPC talking about how grant makers can use DEI in their work a little bit more. But we're also going to be talking to Yvonne Field from the Obele Foundation, and they've been a really leading light in pushing the case that black and ethnic minority groups have not had access to the sort of mainstream funding that charities need. Traditionally, that's starting to change, and hopefully Yvonne can tell us about that. But it feels really timely to be having that conversation now. Yeah, I think there's also a key focus on smaller organizations, right? And the difficulties that smaller organizations face in accessing funding in even the application processes. And it is correct to say that the vast majority of minority-led organizations are also small ones. Yeah, and that's what Obele would always say is that they are at the front line of doing this work, often representing communities who find it hardest to get the healthcare and the educational support that they need, but also are a long way away from mainstream funders. So they stay small, they don't grow, they can't scale and expand their support to more people. And it's a sort of a, an edifying cycle then when it gets harder and harder for those organisations to have the impact that they could. I think if you look at the flip side of this debate, it's also really interesting. We did a story about a month ago about the Tudor Trust, a fairly big funder, about 20 million quid a year normally it gives out. They've closed new applications for funding completely for more than a year now because they are carrying out their own DEI work internally. They've decided that as an organisation there are structural problems with racism and until they've solved those, they're not going to push any more money out the door because they want to do it in a way that's truly equitable. Two schools of thought. One is this is exactly the sort of examination that trusts should be conducting and good for them. Another school of thought people have said to me, listen, your job as a foundation is to get money out the door. So if you don't feel you can do that, give it to somebody who can. Because mm. in the meantime, charities can't access cash and that doesn't help anybody. So that's some of the context I think that we can talk to Yvonne and Sarah about because you have got this sort of extraordinary dimension of this argument. Inside grant makers, a charity trying to access cash, consultants also getting involved trying to work out what's going on. And in the meantime, charities are always in a position where they need money, they need to make it as impactful as possible. And some organisations, especially those working in grassroots, black and ethnic minority groups, they aren't getting that cash and they should. And we have two guests today. We're very pleased to welcome Sarah Denslow, the Principal for Effective Philanthropy at the think tank and consultancy New Philanthropy Capital, known as NPC. Sarah has spent the whole of her career working in grant making, having previously worked at the Asfari Foundation. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Yvonne Field, the founder and chief executive of the Ubele Initiative, 
She's a specialist in strategic development and has spent a long career working with women, young people and black and minoritized communities. She founded Ubele almost 10 years ago as part of her quest to promote social justice and build stable organizations and communities. Hello, Yvonne. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So perhaps you could tell us about your experience of minority-led organisations being at a disadvantage to grant makers. Why is it important that we're talking about this? Philanthropy is supposed to tackle injustice and inequality. Why, in some cases, are they perpetuating it? If I start with the experience that we've had at the Ubele Initiative, as you mentioned, we started 10 years ago, but we started very slowly as volunteers, actually, and I only gave up my main day job just over two years ago, which actually reflects the story of what happens to black and racially minoritized community organizations in that the work that they are often are doing, which particularly if they're small, usually frontline grassroots work, is often not seen by funders. It's not recognized as being important and it's often not seen as reaching the kind of communities that funders often say they want to reach. So there's a real sort of um, dilemma in there. And so for us, what we found really was that the pandemic acted as a rude awakening, I think, both for funders recognising actually that the, the, well, for the whole country recognising the impact of COVID on disadvantaged communities, particularly those that are racialized, and then funders actually waking up and realising that those organisations were reaching the communities that were being most affected by COVID. We also did some research, Ubele did some research early in the pandemic in May 2020. We engaged with about 140 organisations in that first phase of research and the outcomes were that we found that nine out of ten of those organisations were small, didn't have reserves, were often volunteer run and actually were at threat or under threat of closure. What happened, obviously, in terms of May 2020 was Black Lives Matter's movement in the wake of the murder of George Floyd kind of really acted as a catalyst for different kinds of conversations with funders. I remember when that early in COVID Yabele research landed, it was a real wake up call, I think, for the sector about just disproportionately how vulnerable black and ethnic minority led groups were and how far away they were sometimes from the funding. Yvonne, I know that you're involved in a couple of projects at the moment, the Phoenix Way project and also Propel. Do you mind saying a little bit about how you're hoping to address some of those shortcomings through those projects? Yes. So first of all, talk about Propel. I'm here with my colleague Ali from Ubele. We've just come from the launch, the official launch of Propel, which is an initiative that's London focused, that has eight or nine funders involved in this first stage of the development. It's focusing on post-recovery, post-COVID recovery, and there are three different uh, strategic priorities in that fund. One that really kind of affects the work that we do directly in Ubele is around building stronger communities. And the reason why this is really exciting for us was in the room at the launch this morning, there were, for the first time really, there were probably about 80 people, quite squashed into quite a small space. However, there were funders in the room, there were infrastructure organisations in the room, there were equity partners, and Ubele is one of the equity partners, which has helped to co-design this process. And this process has been happening, or kind of taken over a year to design and develop this. 
And equity is at the heart of this particular funding program. It's long term, it's 10 years. Uh, so recognizing that you can't have transformational change over a short period of time, that this is a, a journey that we're all on. And, you know, it really is being quite bold and creative in how it actually seeks to support some really interesting initiatives over the long haul in London. The equity partners in that initiative are central. They really have been highly influential in pushing funders and dragging funders maybe, but certainly pushing them and pulling them to think differently, which actually COVID allowed funders to begin to think quite differently. And we're really pleased that we can build on this going forward over the next few years. It's a hundred million pounds fund. And this morning they announced uh, 25 million pounds worth of grants to nearly 80 groups. And City Bridge Trust and Lottery and John Lyon and other funders are involved in that. They really have listened and taken the learning from COVID and really been able to bring this into Propel as a, as a new kind of funding, long-term funding initiative. Uh, the Phoenix Way also came out of COVID. We had the Phoenix Fund during COVID. And that's, again, really interesting because it's a buy and for fund. It's led by leaders with lived experience who are closest to communities. It is participatory grant making. Under COVID, we had 2.4 million, which we gave to 180 organisations nationally. And now we're building the Phoenix Way, which isn't just funding, it's also funding plus development support, infrastructure support, leadership development, learning, a whole host of um, other areas that are needed across the system. And it's led by us as black and racially minoritized community organizations and leaders. We've just launched actually a million pounds worth of grant making last month as an initial step forward, but this is a 63 and a half million pound fund over the next five years. So it really does put us in the leadership. It's not been easy negotiating with funders about that power dynamic, because we are talking about power here and sharing of power, but it feels like there's an opportunity for a different kind of conversation with both Propel and Phoenix. Ultimately, it's about changing the system long term and we want to make sure that we don't end up you know reverting to where we were pre-pandemic where smaller groups are not even recognized as making a major contribution let alone funded. Mm, It sounds very encouraging and long overdue and it's interesting how COVID was such a catalyst for this change in the whole grant making space and Sarah you've played a leading role in developing a new guidance document on behalf of MPC on how to embed DEI into your grant making cycle. Am I correct in thinking that it's not a coincidence that it is coming now? (laughs) Well, I, I suppose it's an issue that's been increasing in prominence over many years. And whilst philanthropy does a huge amount to address inequality in society, Philanthropy, by its nature, is unequal. It's the result of sort of, you know, the unequal distribution of wealth and power structures, as Ivana said. And there's increasing awareness of this amongst funders and an increasing sort of desire amongst funders to, to think more about diversity, equity and inclusion in their grant making practice, you know, how they can really level the playing field for the organisations that they're funding. And ultimately, we talk in our report about risk and and sort of rebalancing risk, you know, shifting the mindset from, you know, the sort of traditional philanthropic mindset of, you know, mitigating the risk of, of making a grant to the the wrong organisation or making a grant that doesn't succeed to the risk of of impact 
missed or potential impact missed of, of you know not funding those organizations out there who might be doing really really great work particularly thinking about sort of marginalized communities where there may be only a very small number of organizations working with a particular community or using a particular approach it's more important than ever I think given the current context that those organizations are funded. It all sounds quite obvious really you know why why has it taken this catalyst of COVID and now a sort of renewed commitment amongst grant makers you know why has it not been happening all along? As humans we are you know we're resistant to change aren't we we're change averse by our nature and I think you know as Yvonne has said a lot is tied up in the idea of power and funders I think are increasingly becoming aware of the power that they hold and that's power in terms of money in terms of privilege in terms of status in terms of access and independence and the idea of of sharing that power, redistributing that power can be scary and can take time to get there. But I think, you know, in, increasingly there's there's a realization amongst the funding community. And I think it's important for, for charities listening to your to your podcast to, to be aware that this debate is going on in funding circles. There's a lot of, of sort of potential impact missed, I think, with with you know those organizations not receiving grants. And that represents a, a wee shift, I think, for NPC's outlook as well. I should declare my interest a little bit. I spent two and a half very happy years working at NPC, although Sarah and I didn't cross paths. But when I was there, NPC very much about, you know, proportional to what the charities and the grant makers could do, but very focused on evaluation, metrics, uh, measurement, making sure we've seen a sneak preview of the paper. And it does feel like there's a little bit of a shift in tone towards saying, the risk doesn't just lie in not getting the metrics right, it lies with potentially not getting funding where it's needed. Is, is that fair that MPC is sort of slightly reevaluating themselves as well? Certainly there is some some self-reflection going on. And I think, you know, that was a big, big part of the driver of this report. You know, we we're encouraging all funders to think about their practice and you know reevaluate their practice through a DEI lens. And, you know, as MPC over the years, we've not been as strong on this as, as we should have been, both internally and and in the work that we're doing with clients. And so that's one of the reasons why we were, we were so keen to kind of look at this report. And we've also been, you know, thinking about the way that we operate internally through a DEI lens. I mean, I think the important word there is balance. And it's not about throwing out the metrics and throwing out the rigor. I don't, I don't think we would ever espouse that. But it's about looking at, you know, what are your sources of information as a funder and balancing the sort of the information that you're getting from sort of lived experience and involvement of, of those people who really, you know, really have a deep understanding of the issues and what's important with other sources of information, with your metrics, with your you know, academic studies, whatever your sources of information are. You know, and I think I think as, as a team, you know, we've been increasingly aware that that nuance is needed, you know, nuance is needed in the kind of lens that you're applying as a funder to the organisations that you're funding historically that nuance hasn't always been written into all of our guides which is one of the reasons why this is so important. And Yvonne it sounds like there's been a great deal more conversation happening recently and a stated commitment amongst funders and grant makers to open up and improve inclusion in their processes. Have you seen a demonstrable commitment and sort of real change or is there a risk of some of these conversations remaining superficial? Yeah, good question, Lucinda. Um, I think that there are the uh, beginnings of change within some parts of the charitable foundation system. And um, as I said, Propel, for example, is one area that we can see that. I mean, the proof of the pudding's in the eating we've got so far. 
there's been, you know, sort of discussions and, and, you know, quite some tough discussions, actually, over the past, well, for Propel, year and a, nearly a year and a half. But this started, you know, during COVID. And I know as the equity partners, ourselves, Women's Resource Centre, Consortium, Inclusion London, and now Here Network, we really had to be quite firm with funders to say, actually, this is an opportunity for change, and we've, we've, you know, which is long overdue. And so either we're going to have some serious conversations, because we're not just lived experience, actually, we're experts. You know, I spent 40 years working in this field, 40 years plus. I might not have been known to the sector more generally, more sort of nationally, because I've been working in different ways, part of the time in academia, but more so in the field, working as a consultant and doing a whole host of things. However, we are also experts and we know our sector. So actually, we feel that there is the beginnings of a shift. And one of the questions I asked this morning, because, you know, language changes and and often, particularly if you're at the sort of bottom of the rung in a system, it it takes a while to, one, understand what language is now being used and also what it means. And even if you're at the top of the system, you may be using language that you do and still don't quite know what it means, but actually in practice. But actually there's something about it becomes in vogue. So I was suggesting this morning when I was, uh, one of the questions I asked was, how are we going to ensure if Propel is about long-term systemic change, what does that look like? There's, you know, there's uh, nearly 80 organisations that have been funded here those that have got longer-term, three-year funding in the first instance are definitely talking about systems change. But what, how can we actually create a common narrative, simple common narrative about what that might look like, both in terms of cross-propel, but then for the individual organisation's work? But for me, you know, we're at the beginning of this particular journey. Um, there seems to be a lot of willingness for a different kind of conversation and that, that, that actually recognising the equities at the core of this. And that will make people, some people feel deeply uncomfortable. It's not necessarily a nice question. We're talking, as I said, and we've said already, about a shift in power and recognising how power has played out in the past, you know, caused a lot of discomfort in different ways. But I think all of us are involved in that conversation. It's uncomfortable, but it's long overdue. What... Phoenix is trying to do is that, you know, we have to also kind of unlearn what's been done to us by funders. If you've always operated in a system in a certain way, we had to unlearn behaviour because that's how groups had learned. Those that actually jumped through hoops, they'd learned a certain language, you know, even just developing the application form, particularly under Phoenix funding COVID. We were like asking 15, 20 questions. We're like, why are we doing that? Because it's been done to us. So we had to really think quite carefully about how do we actually unpack and unpick what we'd learned and to try and actually change the system because we knew it was stacked against us. So why should we then replicate it and perhaps even make it more firm than it had been? So that we had internal conversations that were quite tough as well. But some of the mainstream funders that are not by and for, such as Cloth Workers and ESME and Trust for London and others, they've all you know, done some deep thinking. They've had to twist the arms, maybe. I'm not around those tables of some of their, their board of trustee members, but they've had to have hard conversations with, you know, board members. I've noticed that there have been an increase in the numbers of funding managers coming into the system who are people of colour. Some of them have actually left as well during the period, so it all is not well because they're there. And sometimes they're also 
being foisted on them to be the the kind of voice for uh, black and racial minoritized communities when they may or may not have expertise and they may or may not want to be pigeonholed into that area. But actually those organisations that I've mentioned, like ESME and Trust for London and so on, they have taken a critical look at what they've been doing, looked at some of the metrics and the data and have now developed strategies which have equity at the core. They've launched new funds around racial justice and equity. And so at least for the next three to five years, we can see that there's a commitment there that will play out within those charitable foundations And you mentioned twisting arms and persuading people and getting new faces into the sector. How's it going trying to influence kind of the ecosystem as a whole? Is it a doors opening left, right and centre now for your ballet or is it still an uphill struggle? Well, I mean, I have to say with Phoenix, it has been quite a struggle and it took pressure from a number of quarters, not just from the Phoenix partners. That was hard, really, really hard. It's hard to walk away from resources for your community. And also, this is one of the biggest funders in the country, so I'm not sure it's happened before, but we were prepared to just say no, actually. So I think that, yeah, there's stories to be written still about this period and this era, which we will write in due course, of course, because it's about lessons learned and what we don't want to keep seeing happening in the system. Certainly, we've learned a lot about grant making, which we didn't know before, said Ubele didn't receive any grants. So we're all on a learning curve, but it's been good. And, you know, it's really important for our community to see people that represent them making some of the decisions, designing programmes that they feel it's for them. You know, I mean, Phoenix, within the first week, we had over 150 applications coming in. So we know we're going to be swamped. We were swamped last time with Phoenix. And we know, generally speaking, there was about a one in 10 chance of getting funding for each application. But I think it'd probably be slightly higher than that this time. So it's highly competitive. You've touched on lots of different areas of where there's potential to change. And Sarah, in your how-to guide, that's been informed by quite a considerable amount of research as well. I know that our listeners are going to have to go and read your guidance document when it's up on the MPC website in a couple of weeks' time. But just give us a high-level overview of how can DEI be better embedded in grant-making. Great. Well, I think there's three points. So the first, which you know we already touched on at the start, is about this idea of reframing risk. So reframing your attitude to risk as a funder away from the idea of mitigating the risk of getting it wrong or mitigating the risk of sort of making the wrong grant towards the idea of the risk of, of not making the right grants, not making the grants to those organisations who may not tick all of your boxes, may not tick all of, you know, all of the things that you might traditionally be looking for through your sort of due diligence processes, but might be doing really, really important work and reaching communities who, you know, you may not otherwise, may not otherwise reach as a funder. And I think from that comes a whole host of other changes you know so reframing your attitude to risk can help you as a funder think about other changes that you might want to make so thinking about as Yvonne says who's involved in your decision making and having sort of meaningful involvement in your decision making from people who really have close understanding of the issues that you're trying to address um, you know at all at all levels 
and then also thinking about your processes. So the over-reliance on, on sort of, you know, traditional written application forms, for example, can be, you know, can be quite a barrier for some organisations. So looking to sort of simplify your processes and kind of reduce that burden as much as possible, giving organisations options for how they can apply, really just looking to change your processes such that they give organisations the best possible chance to show themselves in the best light. And using that as your starting point, I think can, you know, can really help help set up your partners for success. And then I think also looking at thinking about sort of reframing your relationships and trying to build those those kind of relationships of trust um, with organisations where, you know, organisations are in the driving seat, that they're able to, to say what's important and go and, and go and pursue what they think is going to have the biggest possible impact. You know, relationships where they may not be not be afraid to come and tell you that something has gone wrong, you know, for fear of, of their grant being grant being cut off. There's a whole lot more in the guide. So I would, I'd encourage I would encourage your listeners if they're interested to sign up on our website and they can receive an alert when it's when it's live. Yes. And the link to the appropriate page on your website is included in the show notes to this episode. So I'm going to put another question to both of you, considering who the majority of our listeners are. Why do larger charities which many of which are not led by minority ethnic groups why do they need to be aware of this issue and better informed on it there's an opportunity to be allies for allyship with smaller minoritized organizations and to really advocate on their behalf because actually you know in terms of reach some of the small organizations can reach communities that larger organizations say they want to reach but not able to and actually, there's opportunities also for partnerships uh, and partnerships that are real partnerships, not partnerships that are just tick boxes or that, you you know, draws resources from those smaller groups, but actually do nothing to very little to help build their sustainability and their capacity. So for me, there's something about advocacy, allyship, partnerships. And actually, my assumption is if you're working in the, in the sector, then actually you have a real commitment to social justice. Mm. That would be part of you demonstrating your commitment to social justice by actually ensuring that, that you're supporting groups that need access to resources, that you're, you know, you're around the table with the large funders and with decision makers. And actually you need to be aware and conscious of what power you hold in the sector and that actually there's a real opportunity for nurturing and supporting the development of minority communities. And I'm talking about not just racial minority, I'm talking about other minority communities as well, in terms of their development and contribution to the sector. And that actually, the last thing I'd say is that in terms of change, it's sometimes hard to do yourself out of a job, but actually, you know, there is a need for change within the, the, the sector and to bring through different voices uh, to create a diversity. You think about London, you know, 46% of the population now are from black and racially minoritized communities in London. It's a growing community or communities. It's very diverse within that 46%. But actually, there's some parts of the country where actually there isn't a, a racial majority as well. And so for me, it's like, you know, that there's, there's work, there's an opportunity actually for larger charities to for, you know, for them to be able to contribute. I think, you know, adding to that, I think there's an opportunity for influence within those larger organisations as well. Diversity, equity and inclusion is enriching to the sector and, you know, in, embedding diversity, equity and inclusion in your practice as an organisation, you know, whether you are a funder or whether you are a charity, large or small, will improve your practice and, you know, can help increase the impact that you're having. 
And so I think, you know, there's an opportunity there for influencing change within those larger organisations as well, as Yvonne was saying, helping those larger organisations kind of think about the ways that they are relating to smaller organisations, if they're working in partnership, if they're working in collaboration, thinking about the sort of the nature of the relationships that they're developing. In some cases, there can be parallels between that sort of funder-grantee relationship. So all of the things that we're saying about funders, you know, needing to sort of reframe their attitude to risk, thinking about who's making the decisions, thinking about what their processes are, I think could also apply in those situations to the the larger sort of more established charities working with sort of smaller grassroots. And we've heard about injections of cash through some of the projects that uh, Ubele are involved in, new guides from MPC. If you're a small charity out there working at the grassroots of black and ethnic minority community, what sort of change would you hope to see off the back of this new focus? What one or two things do you think are going to show that this work is really having an impact? So I think we would hope to see a much more equitable distribution of funding. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental. I think indicators of that will start to be things like decision makers within the organisations change. And so you know, those grassroots charities will start to see funders looking, you know, looking and talking more like them in a way that that shows that they're understood. And, you know, funders are, are, are really sort of getting to the heart of what the issues are and where the needs are. Processes will be changing to be more accessible, to give applicants kind of more options for how they might put forward their best case. The fundamental is that the money is getting to those organisations and ultimately those people and communities that need it the most. I think that one of the changes that smaller groups would want to see is that this commitment is long term, that it's long term and that also it's not just short project based funding. So you can have a long-term commitment, but it's still project-based. Actually, there's a commitment to looking at the real needs of some of the small organisations out there and that they can support core costs so that they're, you know, they obviously there are going to be a lot of volunteers involved as they often are in smaller groups, but at least they can have some costing for, you know, staffing, overheads, and then project costs because actually you'll find smaller groups providing extraordinary services you know, with, I don't know, £10,000 grants for a project, but actually the reach and impact is exponential. And I think that some of those groups that have been doing that for 10, 15, 20 years need that long-term support in the core, in the middle, so that they can at least have some level of sustainability. I think that the whole issue of risk that has been raised a couple of times, you know, one of the things that we've been able to do through Phoenix in particular is to support real nascent groups, groups that are coming through and got really great ideas, responding to crisis. Now we've got the cost of living crisis, of course. So there's different approaches, but they may not have all their ducks in a row in terms of the governance arrangements and so on. But fiscal hosts and uh, incubating some of those ideas can help some of them grow into, you know, considerable enterprises and organisations. Yvonne Field from Ubele and Sarah Denslow from NPC, thank you both very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Next week, Russ and I will be back and joined by Alina for a coronation special to explore the value or not of royal patrons to charities. Um, And I will be watching you both very carefully to make sure that no treason takes place during that podcast. But in the meantime, if you want to listen back to any of our podcasts, you can do so through our website or through your favourite podcast provider. And you can also find the transcripts of our podcasts online to read at your leisure. Just go to our website, thirdsector.co.uk. 
Thank you to our guests, Yvonne Field and Sarah Danslow, and our producer, Alf Powell.